Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I am very excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to talk about. Building, scaling, financing, and also being on both sides of the table because our guest today has seen it all. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Michael Ronan. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So, originally born in Israel, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Well, it was Israel of the 1970s and early 80s, so it's also a different Israel at the time. So, uh, yeah, let's just say that it was quite different than New York City and Silicon Valley. I grew up in a rural town in the northern part of Israel. Um, I grew up, that town was very close to an air base, a uh, very large air base of the Israeli Air Force. And so... Um, my dream was to be a um, uh, an Air Force pilot, and I never got to do that, uh, but I got ultimately to be part of the Israeli Air Force Intelligence uh, Forces. So I did some very, very interesting things that I still cannot talk about, certainly not on a podcast, but certainly shaped, uh, shaped my life. How do you think that shaped your life, your future? I would say the the both growing up in Israel during some difficult times, you know, the 1970s still had significant wars and conflicts in Israel. And when I was a very young kid, the Yom Kippur War in 1973 was a, was a big event. Uh, I think it creates resilience and perspective at an early age, and gives you uh, gives you some strength that otherwise, um, you know, my kids grew up in the last 10, 15 years in the U.S. And it's just a different, it's just a different level of resilience and, um, and strength that comes out of that. And then I would say in the Air Force intelligence, you know, you, you start, you do this um, just after high school. So I graduated high school at the age of 18. And within three, two, three months, I was in a very intense program as part of the Air Force intelligence. And, and some kind of very intense events happen. You know, I had a a Syrian air, air pilot uh, take a MiG and defect to Israel within my first year of, of being in charge of some of the operations. This is six, 12 months after being in high school. And suddenly the consequence of things not going well is not just getting a B on your math exam. It's you might, you know, first put people in danger and maybe even a country in danger uh, people can get hurt. Uh, obviously, there's lives at stake and fundamental kind of national issues that are at stake. And second, you're kind of you're on for yourself, and you need to take care of yourself. And and if you're doing well, that's great. And if you're challenged and and things are hard, uh, you know there's there's no one to talk to you. You need to kind of figure it out. Uh, and the consequences of of screwing things up in uh, in, in the army is not just being, you know, get, getting a, a bad grade or being, you know, out of the school for a day. It's being in prison uh, and losing yeah. your freedoms or doing, you know, very, very, it's very high stakes. So, so, so basically here you do the Air Force, uh, you know, obviously very much shaped your future, influenced you as a person, as a professional. Uh, and eventually you go uh, study law uh, and then from law, you did your MBA. Why didn't you become a lawyer? Well, let's start with why did I even get to law? If I'm honest about it, it was really I was just searching for what would be 
the path that will take me forward. And uh, my mother, God rest her soul, like a good Jewish mother, wanted me to be a doctor. You know, it was all about kind of having a profession. And law was a way for me to get a perspective on, on business life that is different. And I, and I practiced it for a year or two, actually, in Tel Aviv. And it was very clear to me that, that it's a very narrow way of experiencing business and experiencing life. And my ambition was to be, uh, to leave the country, to kind of move to the U.S. I frankly didn't even know exactly how and why, but I just wanted to participate in business in a big way. Uh, and lawyers, as much as the work is great and, um, and can be quite fulfilling, have basically the, the job, certainly in the corporate side, is to, when everything is said and done and a transaction is complete, they they allocate risk in in legal documents between the two sides and to me all the interesting stuff happens before that when the business deal actually is getting cut when uh you know people build and and work to build businesses and and that's that's what i wanted to participate in so you ended up going to the investment banking side of it so you became a partner eventually in, in Goldman Sachs uh in New York and you were involved with them for quite a while, almost 20 years. That is many, many, many years working like crazy hours, eh? like, like they would do there typically. So I think that this experience, without a doubt, gave you access to be able to meet with tons of CEOs, uh, also be able to see what works, what doesn't work in companies. So perhaps, you know, that pattern recognition. So what was that pattern recognition? How did that shape up for you? How were you able to see, you know, good CEOs from bad CEOs or good companies from bad companies? So, yeah, it is obviously the biggest chunk of my professional life was this experience. And I didn't leave because it was a combination of an amazing firm um, that went through a lot of ups and downs, but is comprised of really, really strong uh, people that I constantly learned from. And a career path where you grow and you do more and you become a very influential and, and kind of a complete leader. And frankly, it's, it's, it's every time I thought about doing something else, the job got more interesting and bigger. Um, and yes, you're right, Alejandro. I, I did see a lot of different uh, industries and experiences. It's, it was always what, in what we call TMT. So it was always telecom, media, and tech. And I always like to work across these sectors, which are quite different, but they all share kind of the disruption of technology. And, and when I joined telecom was, uh, this is late 90s, early 2000s, telecom was disrupted. The old telecom business became a broadband business, first wireline and then wireless. Um, and then, you know, obviously tech and internet and media became a, a growth business by fueled by the broadband and the transition from physical to digital and look, the, the, the things you see in small and bigger companies is how people react and um, adapt to change. And the old saying of you either adapt or you die, I've seen this time and time again. Uh, the old, some old telecom companies never adapted and they became basically extinct and went bankrupt. Some companies adapted, became broadband companies and grew. Same thing with media, right? You know, you see something like Spotify. Uh, essentially taking a piracy model and making it uh, a legitimate, well-constructed, well profitable uh, business globally. And now we see this in, in tech, adapting to AI, et cetera. So the, 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 the thing that I clearly saw is the exuberance that always gets through when you have 
when you have big changes, and that could be quite um, disorienting. My first year or two at Goldman, I was on private jets funding companies without revenues in the first internet bubble. And that seemed to be completely normal because that's what I got into. And then when it all implodes in your face, you realize, oh, whoa, that was that was actually not the normal. There's actually a normal below this that I just discovered. And then again, in 07, 08, 09, when the bubble, you went, you go through another one, we are just going through another one right now. Um, you kind of learn to not be too disoriented by these bubbles. Yeah, I always joke, if there's a bubble, I kind of want to participate early and leave before, before, the, before the party's over. It's very hard to do because you never know exactly um, when and how, but you certainly understand when it's exuberant and when when things are um, are not right. And the best CEOs, the best leaders have a steady hand. They're able to um, participate in a kind of thoughtful way in the growth uh, parts of, of, these, uh, of these cycles. And they, they manage the risk of the cycle uh, turning on them. And they're able to keep their team together throughout that journey. And these are, you need experience, you need uh, vision, you need culture, you need stability to be able to do that. And those who do that very well, including companies like Apple and Google and many other companies, Microsoft, which went through decades of difficulties and now is emerging as a leader in AI, you know, those companies with those strong cultures and, and leaders can really make a difference. So obviously 20 years at Goldman, you know, tons of great experiences there. Obviously you were you know, doing pretty well, um, I'm sure, as a partner at Goldman for so many years. Why making the switch and uh, joining SoftBank uh, for their vision fund? I mean, obviously, a crazy idea uh, with a crazy vision, as the name of the fund is, $100 billion, which was completely unheard of. But how was that shift of gears for you? So it all starts with Steve Jobs and Massa, right? So I, in my years at Goldman, one of the most fascinating CEOs I obviously worked with was Masayoshi Son, which was uh, SoftBank, and I later joined, but also Steve Jobs. Uh, and, and I worked with Apple uh, as it entered from PC into wireless through the iPhone. At the time, I was working with Motorola as well and BlackBerry, and so that I saw that collision. And at the time, Masa was leveraging his relationship with Steve and Apple to take on telecoms and became a very wealthy investor in telecom. So 10 years later, I'm a partner at Goldman and I'm working across different industries. Masa comes up with the idea of, of the Vision Fund and, and he's talking to Middle East investors about it. And I frankly went to see him and said exactly, Hondo, what, what you just said, which is, it is a crazy idea. Um, as always, Masa comes up with those and that's one of the reasons people admire him. And I told him, Masa, I don't know what you're going to do with $100 billion in, uh, in tech. I, I know what to do with $100 billion in telecom. You know, these are big capital-intensive companies. But at the time, 2016 into 17, you know, it's, it's just too big. And I said, Masa, if, if anything, maybe one area where I begin to see capital intensity and, and disruption, maybe there's, there's a wave there to, to ride is transportation which was not something that, and logistics, which is not something that was on the radar at the time. I said, look, Tesla is a, is a small company, but it's super disruptive. And most people think it's not going to make it, but it seems like they will make it. Uber is a startup uh, that is disrupting uh, transportation in a meaningful way. There's companies disrupting uh, logistics. These are capital-intensive industries that maybe could require 
you know, this, this type of strategic scale investing. And Masa literally turned to me and said, instead of telling me what not to do and, and how stupid this is, why don't you come and do it? And so the opportunity to be aligned with a very large fund and to try and participate in those markets uh, was very hard to, uh, to pass, despite being in a great position at Goldman. And so, um, yes, my mother wasn't pleased. It would have been um, more uh, traditional and safe to stay, but it was much more exciting to move from New York to Silicon Valley to start, start investing. And I did invest behind these themes that, that I shared with Masa in, in that first meeting in early 2017, and including in companies with General Motors and, and things like Cruise and Flexport, which is disrupting um, freight, et cetera, et cetera. So it was quite quite fulfilling, and, and uh, I, I must say that I, I really enjoyed it. And without a doubt, you know, perhaps the trigger for you to become an entrepreneur, I guess, uh, maybe like being uh, able to uh, rub elbows with uh, some of those incredible founders that the, that the Vision Fund was able to invest in. I mean, tons and tons of unicorns. I'm sure that you were able to, um, to really get that bug too. Uh, and, um, and eventually you decide that it's time for you to start a company. So how did that happen? Yeah, I think um, it was a privilege. And I would say that in, on investing in general, it's a privileged perspective, right? As an advisor, I saw a lot of companies, but I saw them always in the juncture of a transaction, going public, merging a company, selling a company. When you're working with companies as a growth investor, you see this cycle of growth and you see how they deal with all the adversities of, of building a company and, and, and you learn a lot again. And, and obviously this was a time of excess. There were clearly uh, kind of uh, things to, to deal with and, and mistakes that were made, but there were actually, as you said, great entrepreneurs inside. There was more than 80 companies ultimately um, in, in the vision fund. And I invested in quite a few of them um, and saw probably, you know, I probably invested in over five, six or seven companies in, in those three years, so very large concentrated investments, but probably saw 500 um, in, in that period of time. The reason I ultimately chose to be an entrepreneur was, frankly, uh, number one, it was COVID by the time I, I left and starting something was hard, but starting a company with great co-founders, which was the key ingredients was possible given the shift in technology and the way the world worked. And I really wanted to be on the other side of the investing um, business to see what it is to, what it feels like to build and to receive capital and, and be a steward of capital as, an, as, as a builder, not just as an investor. Uh, and frankly, test, test myself, test my ability to, uh, to do that and do that well. And it was an incredibly humbling experience because as much as I did great things and interesting things and worked incredibly hard uh, over the years in different positions, being a founder is, um, my God, it is the, the most difficult thing to do uh, by far. Um, it is, um, I would say it's, if you compare it to driving, you know, I drove, uh, you know, my career was driving very fast cars on highways and uh, maybe as a partner in Goldman, some luxurious cars and very fast highways, and then you're on a motorcycle, uh, you know, in a in a in a kind of in a dirt road, and there's there's kind of suddenly everything you do impacts the company immediately, and you can see it. But you fall and you have to stand up with that motorcycle time and time again as an entrepreneur, and that's that's just a different. It's it's still getting from A to B, 
but it's a very, very different experience and certainly will make me a better investor as well. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So uh, the company Branded, what were you guys uh, doing at Branded? And how? why did you think that this company or this problem was meaningful enough for you to take action and go at it? So um, it was, uh, again, COVID days and e-commerce clearly was getting an immense, a massive boost. Going back to the point of, of cycles, it was very disorienting. It was very hard to tell how much of e-commerce growth, Amazon growth, is coming from the secular trend of obviously every year Amazon was growing very fast and how much of that is cyclical from lockdowns and, and, and whatnot. But it was clear there's a lot of growth. The thesis was there were many, Amazon opened up its e-commerce platform. So similar to AWS and compute, Amazon made the, made the, the, the subject of opening up your e-commerce business available to anyone with very little capital, but just great entrepreneurial skills. And so people were building small brands on Amazon and selling through them. And you can become a profitable business with $2 million, $5 million, $7, $10 million of revenues. And, and that was not possible before uh, the Amazon platform was essentially democratizing e-commerce. We, so my partner, Pierre, who's now the sole CEO of the company, myself, who co-founded it, with him and two uh, other co-founders thought that if we acquire a couple, a handful of those smaller brands and put them on a common uh, e-commerce tech platform and inject into them capital and the ability to grow them with expertise that small business owners just don't have, we'll be able to do better than what they can do themselves and create a diversified brand holding company that is online and quite compelling. And that's essentially what we did. Um, and so, um, so while Amazon started shrinking at the end of COVID, Branded is still growing. It's growing organically without acquisitions. It's now north of $200 million in, in sales and a couple hundred, uh, 300 people or so around the world, and it's profitable. Um, and so the thesis clearly worked despite the volatility and 
um, in the markets. And uh, the good news for me was I got the experience of a lifetime building it. Um, I now can really empathize with founders who are struggling day to day with their businesses. Um, and the company is doing well. And the CEO, Pierre, my friend, is, um, is fully in charge. And I'm able to extract myself as an entrepreneur, take a deep breath, do this fun stuff with you while I contemplate uh, kind of my next steps. And also you guys raised $150 million plus. Is that right? Yeah, raised more than that, in both in equity and debt. And going back to the theme of, of just be a steady hand, while we certainly grew very fast, we grew from zero to 200 million in, in a year or two, uh, we didn't over leverage, uh, we didn't overextend ourselves, we tried to stay strategic, we tried to stay in some market niches that where we thought we can add value. And look, we were all living, and this was another example of it, in, in a period of time that I don't think we'll see again in our lifetime. I certainly, in a way, hope we won't, where money was essentially free and flowing everywhere. And you could leverage uh, both with debt and equity and create huge things quickly. Um, you kind of need to see through that to the underlying business fundamentals and not be intoxicated by it. Uh, so leverage it, but kind of be steady, steady hand. And that's what we did. Um, and so we use the capital to buy good businesses and manage them. And once we stopped raising in 2021, uh, late 2021, when we saw the markets well before the 2022 cool down begin to turn that way, we kind of hunkered down and managed the business for cash flow profitability, which proved to be the right thing to do. Now, in terms of, um, you know, your, your next chapter, I mean, why did you decide to you know, leave branded more as a part-time gig, you know, versus dedicating yourself full-time to it? Because, I mean, it sounds like a, like a rocket ship. It is a rocket ship. Uh, and so if you think about the rocket ship, I participated in the first stage of launch. So zero to that first thing peeling out. And then there's a second, usually in the, um, a second stage, maybe I participated in that. But now we're kind of uh, branded is becoming a more mature growth company, but in a more mature stage. Uh, part of what we needed to do is, given the, the world we're in, to take costs down, so shrink the U.S. expensive footprint and move things overseas. So I really um, did this for the company as much as I did it for anything else to make sure that the company, which Pierre is based in Europe, much cheaper than the U.S., uh, we have Southeast Asia, um, and we have other low-cost locations uh, to kind of put it in a position where it can be profitable uh, and continue to grow in a more modest way. So my role of standing up the company, building the fundamentals, raising the capital, helping establish the team, uh, really uh, came to uh, to a natural end. And uh, and I'm very involved. I'm a board member, investor, advisor, etc. So I'm I'm. There's not a day where I'm not somehow involved with branded but it's it it opened me up to pursue the passion which is now take that experience and all the other experience and go back uh, most likely into investing so then let's talk about most likely into investing so uh what does this i know that uh, you don't want to spill the beans here yet because it's a uh, it's in the making but what can you share with the audience what's going to be that uh, next chapter for you and why did you decide this next chapter as the one that made sense at this point in your career yeah, I, I won't. Uh, I won't spill the beans. But um, 
you know, uh, let, let's let's kind of give a little bit of a, of a preview. Um, look, I think that um, between the experiences that we touched on, the Goldman, the SoftBank uh, brand as an entrepreneur, I, I'm ready to build an investment uh, business. So not just invest, but build a firm that invests. And so to me, it's time in my life to uh, participate in building um bring a team together to build something that when and if I retire, we'll see how that all shapes up. And whether it's 15, 20, 30 years from now, whatever it's going to be, I actually leave behind something that is much bigger than me. Um, And the experiences I think that I've experienced until now actually prepare me for that uh, in terms of building a culture and and investing, et cetera. So the business I'm going to build is going to be an investment business. The thematic kind of um, focus of, of that business will leverage, again, you kind of need to play through strengths in life. And, and it's really thinking through strategically in some of the sectors that I've invested in. So transportation, logistics, where climate issues continue to influence outcomes. And it's a huge matter. But, you know, I've been in consumer. I've been in fintech now. I've, I've done media. I've, I'm going to be prolific. Um, and the other strength is strategic and, and structured. So I, I took Masa essentially into General Motors uh, to try and build a uh, what is now one of the premier self-driving platforms uh, in the world, certainly second to none, uh, perhaps with Google. Um, and there was nobody else that was prepared to do that type of investment. And it was a highly structured investment where General Motors clearly was a partner and we would have had some downside protection. but. Uh, unlimited upside, and that was exited with over a billion dollars of profit in in two years, and 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 Cruz got catapulted to to uh, a number one position. Structured investing, partnering with corporates, having strategic partnerships, so doing more than just putting money into a company, but actually being partners with big companies and thinking through how to do that in a structured way, I think is a strength. Um, I think companies will need it. The world will be constrained. Uh, with capital over the next several years. We're in a very different cycle. Um, and then building an investment platform around that will be very, very exciting. So I am uh, actively exploring the right partnerships and capital to see whether that can become reality soon. Amazing. And I'm sure that to uh, build a firm that is long-lasting, you know, that you leave behind and, and that is bigger than yourself, as you were alluding to, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, things that you've learned from being close to people like Massa or, you know, other leaders that you were mentioning, like Steve Jobs or, or, or people like that. So I guess if you had to pick the top three traits of this, of the, of the most incredible, inspiring leaders that you've had the opportunity to meet and, and to work closely with, what would you say are those top three key traits that you think for sure you're going to be applying as you're building this next chapter, this firm that uh, you probably are considering the biggest the, you know, thing in your career? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. The first thing I would say is that any organization is a reflection of the top uh, people in the organization. So it's just like being a parent. You can tell your kids not to do something, but if you're doing it yourself, this just doesn't matter. So you need to model the culture that you're trying to build in the way you behave with your team, in the messages uh, that you convey, it's in the way you carry yourself with people, strategy, et cetera, that will be the culture. So the first trait is be very authentic and be uh, very visible uh, in the way you communicate culture. 
Goldman created a 200-year culture through that, through the perpetuation of these traits, hiring people that align with that culture, and always from the top down uh, uh, exemplifying it in everything you do, in hiring, in promotion, and et cetera. So that's, that's point one. Point two is it's like driving a fast car on a track or doing any type of sports that require hand-eye coordination. You, you can't look at the next turn. You have to look very far down the track. Uh, so you have to, certainly need to take care of business in the day-to-day, but your job as a leader is to have the vision to know where you're going and to communicate that constantly to the team in a very clear and articulate way, right? You can't, um, you, as, as the leader, you can't just be uh, trapped by the, by the mundane. You have to deal with it, but your vision um, and, and the way you communicate it to, uh, uh, to your team will be, will be critical. And then look, there is the kind of the last part of it, which is um, maybe going back to the theme of this discussion, which is, is it's a steady hand um, and it's a steady hand through ups and downs. Now, you're the experienced person. Uh, there's going to be people that are half my age working with me. Um, I've seen cycles. I've seen ups and downs and just having the kind of going back to that vision, but not just the vision, but the actual steady hand on the wheel. Um, to guide the team through the ups and downs and just be a great mentor as we do that uh, and not kind of be swayed uh, by some of the, uh, by those movements, I think is, is critical. So maybe those three traits um, uh, would be a good summary of what I've seen from some of these CEOs. Love it. So, um, so Michael, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, I think they can ping me on LinkedIn. I get quite a lot of those, and that, that will be maybe a, a good first filter. And from there, we can, uh, we can leave uh, details and show notes and whatnot, but, but that will be a good start. Amazing. Well, hey, Michael, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thanks a lot, Alejandro. Fun to be here. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.